Blog Talk Radio. On today's continuing on with a military theme, as I am joined by retired four-star Admiral Bill Gortney. Welcome to the show, and it's great to speak to you once again. Well, thanks for having me, AJ. I, I hope my uh, cell phone coverage will be able to make this useful for you and your uh, audience. <laughs> sure, it sounds great. So as someone who comes from a naval background, what can you tell us about growing up around that and the influence it had on you? Well, I'm second-generation naval officer, naval aviator. Uh, my father joined right out of high school um, after Pearl Harbor and retired after uh, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and the Cold War, retired in 1970. Now, when I was, uh, I guess, you know, I was just going into my um, sophomore year in high school was when he retired. Through most of that period of growing up, you know, I kind of wanted to do what my dad was doing. Then in high school, I got a little bit of tired when I realized that uh, moving around wasn't all that much fun. And, and when it came time to go to school, I wanted no part of the Navy. Hmm. So um, uh, I was looking to be a lawyer and um, went to Elon College, you know, history and double, uh, political science double major, uh, focusing on going to law school. And um, uh, halfway through college at Elon, I realized I didn't want to be a lawyer and changed my mind and decided to go with do what my father did. And um, he wasn't real fired up about that. He wanted me to be a lawyer, but of course I was a teenager, so my father didn't like it, so I thought it was a great idea. But um, eventually I uh, went into the Navy and continued to do it for 39 years and uh, wow. have never looked back. It was a great experience. Okay. So you could have been a naval lawyer, perhaps. So why choose the route of being an aviation, you know, going to aviation officer candidate school instead? Yeah. Um, uh, one, I didn't want to be a lawyer. And and with a history and political science degree, what, what, do you, what can you do with that? And um, uh, during a period of time, went back out and uh, saw flight ops on an aircraft carrier um, in college. And I said, you know, I'll go do that for a few years. And um, it took me a while to get in. It took me through on my third attempt because I had no uh, math or science um, and maybe looks for more of the technical degrees. But they finally let me in. And after my first tour, I had so much fun. My wife and I, high school sweetheart Sherry and I had so much fun. We just did it, did it for the rest of uh, until two and a half years ago. Wow. So what is it about the Navy that, you find most enjoyable? Well, it's the uh, people in the mission. Um, you'll hear that from a lot of us. I mean, flying was just a benefit. Um, it's what got me hooked. It's what uh, early days um, got me involved in the business. But after a period of time, um, it turns into the people that you're serving with, the Navy family that you're serving with, and, uh, and then the mission of serving, uh, serving this great nation. And uh, it's a very satisfying uh, and rewarding and um, makes you wealthy beyond your wildest dreams because too many people measure wealth in terms of money, but it's really about um, uh, your family, the, your mission, uh, who you serve, who you work with is really all goes into wealth. And we were wealthy beyond our wildest dreams. Fantastic. So what is it like 
to fly fighter jets. And did you have a favorite aircraft in particular? Yeah, well, I started after my wings. I was sent back for a year and a half and instructed in the T-2 in Beeville, Texas. And then I, uh, from there, I started, I flew um, the A-7 Corsair for my first tour. Um, had a wonderful time in that. It was a hard, hard tour, but it was a, it was a great, great command, great leadership, great ready room. Um, and then I got into the F-18, started flying the F-18 in the early days, 83, 84, 1983, 1984, into the Hornet when it was fairly new. And um, flew that until, uh, well, two weeks before I picked up my third star, every variant of the Hornet, the Super Hornet. Um, so it, it's obviously my favorite aircraft. I spent the most time in it, uh, 33, 3,400 hours in all the variants um, in the Hornet itself. So um, I'd call it the favorite, but they're all good. Um, uh, the last uh, two flying jobs I had, uh, I started flying the helicopter, the H-60, and I fly the Hornet or Super Hornet one day and uh, H-60 the other day. That was pretty cool. Well, that's actually something I'm, I'm curious about. So you can continue to fly as long as you don't have more than two stars? Well, um, yeah. Well, you know, in our tour, um, after your air wing command tour, uh, much like when you talked with Mark Fox, we were both air wing commanders. Um, after that uh, was carrier striker command. And, um, and we kind of expect... Uh, aviators and carrier striker command to continue to fly. So I, I, I had my uh, first and second star, made my second star halfway through that tour um, in that job. And so I continued to fly as a carrier striker commander. Uh, and then after that, um, there was no real opportunity to, to fly, uh, stay current and qualified. Uh, and if you can't do it uh, legally and safely and, um, you just shouldn't be doing it. So what I mean legally, I mean, it's it's that you can do your quals, keep your quals current, keep current in the airplane, um, everything that's required uh, in order to do that. If you can't do that, then you have no reason to be in an airplane. Sure. What were your thoughts on that? When you got to the point where you advanced so far that you're tasked with more strictly command-oriented roles as opposed to you know, being in the air? Yeah, well, that started um, that started in the after uh, air wing commander job because as an air wing commander, your uh, your responsibility is both to lead and to lead on the ground and to lead in the air. Um, as a carrier striker commander, um, it was the more uh, you know you're you're in the, more in the commander role, and um, the, the flying is to see how well the carrier striker is doing. Um, but I chose not to, um, uh, you know, fly. We were supporting operations in Iraq, and as a carrier striker commander, I chose not to go over um, the beach in Iraq and left that up to the people who was, that was our primary duties. Hmm. So a bit into your career, uh, you went to the Naval War College. How did that prepare you for challenges you would later face? Um, well, uh, you know, Throughout, no matter what you do, you need to continue to learn. Uh, if you're not learning something every day, you're doing something wrong. Um, so it's really imperative that um, you don't stay stagnant and don't stretch yourself and stretch your mind. 
So uh, it's not just Navy War College, but again, even to this day, every single day you should be looking at an opportunity to continue to learn about something. Um, and then at the Navy War College, that's professional education, and that's where uh, you know the professional learning environment as an adult is really important, uh, where you study um, you know joint warfare operations, operational level of war. Um, as uh, uh, and get that uh, you know graduate degree you know, at the Navy War College uh, you know you pick up your pick up your master's degree through there. So again, it's a combination of both um, uh, stretching your mind day to day and then the professional development um, in your formal education is critical. Makes sense. I think I've read before that if someone doesn't go for that sort of degree, is there sort of a limit to how far they can advance? Uh, no, not necessarily. Goldwater Nichols uh, mandated uh, professional education, and so in the Navy, uh, at the um, either at the 04 level or at the 0506 level, we send you to uh, get your professional education and your and your master's degree. So it it just sort of happens in course. If you are tracking, like the company wants you to do, they're going to send you to school, and uh, you're going to pick up that graduate degree, um, Navy War College degree, either in residence at the Navy War College or any of the war colleges. All the services have war colleges, and you can go to any of them. Um, or if you don't do that, then it's expected that you get it um, um, on through distance learning. But most people get it in residence. Hmm. So I'm curious. I saw you also earned a Bronze Star. Is there an interesting story that goes around with that? Uh, no, not really. Um, uh, that, I believe that was for my air wing commander tour when we were, I was uh, the air wing commander on, on the John F. Kennedy, uh, and we were pulling out on the morning of 9-11 for our major six week training and certification event. Um, we finished that up about eight weeks later because of the events that occurred on the morning of 9-11. Uh, and then, uh, we went to Fallon, Nevada for more high-end uh, training the air wing did. Carrier had some more work to get done on it, and then we deployed, and we got over to support OEF in the early days, not the opening days, but the early days of enduring freedom over Afghanistan, and we did that for about seven months. Uh, and so for that period of time um, that we were uh, supporting, uh, support King uh, uh, combat operations, over Afghanistan, uh, U.S. Naval Central Command, U.S. Fifth Fleet, uh, awarded all of the commanding officers and air wing commanders, anybody in a leadership position, a Bronze Star for, the, for, the, for those for that period of time. So it's not individual action other than uh, in the Navy, all the services uh, um, award Bronze Stars for a little bit different reasons. Um, uh, but you'll notice mine does not have a combat V on it. It was... Uh, for being in a leadership role in supporting combat, uh, combat operations. Hmm. So you mentioned 9-11. Um, from a military perspective, what was it like for you in terms of the days following that, and you know, how did that unfold from your perspective? Yeah, well, um, we were pulling out of Mayport, Florida, which is the easiest scene anchor detail in the world. But when a carrier gets underway or any ship gets underway, one of the first things we do is a administrative uh, action called a man overboard drill. 
so that everybody knows where they're supposed to go uh, in, in the event of a man overboard. And then we have an accurate muster of 100% of the, of the crew and all uh, and everybody in every single command. So it's kind of an open book test that occurs within about 45 minutes from pulling away from the pier when you get underway. So we were uh, not probably, I don't know. We're breaking up a little bit here. with his mouth open and I followed his eyes to the TV and there was a world trade center with smoke pouring out of it. And then we watched the second airplane fly into the world trade center. And um, so right off the bat, that was quite an awakening for all of us, not, not just the nation, but for us on the ship, you know, we were getting, getting ready to get underway for a major training and certifying event. And at that point I knew that we didn't know when we were going to come home. And I told the air wing um, that, uh, you know, I was a deputy air wing commander at the time, and um, the number two guy in the air wing, George Dom, was the air wing commander. And I told him that that part of the air wing that was on board Kennedy, I said, hey, I don't know when we're going to go home, but you know, when we finally go home, we're going to go home to a different America than the one we just sailed from, which okay. is really true. Uh, that evening, um, we had in the air wing, got George Washington underway, uh, uh, come out of... Uh, uh, Fleet Forces Command, now Fleet Forces Command, the four-star got George Washington underway. And by end of, that end of that night, we had half the air wing on George Washington, and that's where George Dom was, the air wing commander, and uh, the other half of the air wing on, on John F. Kennedy. And we, we kept that configuration for about a week, week and a half, till we consolidated everybody on the John F. Kennedy, and we got on our way. So it was, it was quite a... Uh, um, Quite an event, uh, getting everybody out there and uh, live ordnance loaded up and just trying to figure out, you know, what happened and um, what's next. Well, you know, I remember then the sense of unity and support for the military that there was, and it would be nice if we could have held that indefinitely. And, of course, that faded over time, um, which I think is a real shame oh, because I'll, the country, yeah. I'll disagree, I'll disagree with you. Um, you know, uh, you know, we're, our nation's now been in war for 18 years from that uh, terrible moment uh, that morning. And um, throughout that period of time, I think what what has changed uh, both for Iraq and Afghanistan is the public uh, elements of the public may have questioned why we're in Af Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, but not once have they questioned uh, their support uh, for the soldier, sailor, airman, marine, and coast guardsmen that's been fighting that fight. I mean, the, the uh, public support um, for the military has really been uh, incredible. Um, and as I tell uh, the people that are still serving uniform, we can't take that for granted that the American people will be as supportive of the service members as they have over the last 18 years. So now more than ever, we need that support. And that's why it's absolutely critical that uh, both active and retired reach out and talk much like you and I are talking today uh, about how important their support is. Another piece of it is, is um, I also tell them that, uh, you know, those of us, those that still wear the cloth of the nation and those of us that took off the cloth of the nation, um, we're not the only people that wear the cloth of our nation. Um, the cloth of our nation is also worn by our first responders our police our firemen, uh, quite frankly, uh, uh, our nurses, our doctors, our school teachers. 
uh, they too are uh, serving uh, this great nation of ours. And they too are wearing the cloth of our nation. It just is a different little cut and color uh, than those of us uh, in the armed forces. And it's also really important that uh, all of us that wear the cloth of the cloth of our nation, uh, it's our families. The families are the very stitches that hold that cloth together. No, you make a good point. I think especially compared to the terrible way um, veterans retreated after Vietnam. You know, obviously, there's a Absolutely. huge difference between them. Sure. So um, getting back to your uh, career a bit, um, as director of the Joint Staff, a position you held under two different chairmen, what was that role like, and were you privy to everything all the Joint Chiefs were? Yeah, well, you know, the, being the director of the Joint Staff, it's a better job in hindsight than as you're living it. Um, that's a joke. Um, but uh, it's actually a pretty good job. It's a really good job. It's a fascinating job. Um, positionally, you're the number three person on the Joint Staff, but you're really a, a chief of staff uh, of the Joint Staff, which means any good chief of staff means you uh, herd the cats. It's all about peer leadership and uh, herd everybody moving in the direction that the chairman wants to go. And then also uh, uh, an implied task of that is to do the things that the chairman or the vice chairman uh, don't have time to do or not able to do. Uh, and you've got to make sure that those things are done. And also, um, I call the director of the joint staff really the chief engineer, the Chang. A Chang on a ship keeps the ship moving through the water. And so you're also the Chang keeping the ship moving through the water um, uh, as you go through there. So it's a pretty fascinating job, but you're working with um, some incredible people. Um, you know, uh, my J3 was uh, the J3 that I worked with was Jay Paxton and then Bob Miller. And uh, Bob Miller is the commandant of the Marine Corps and Jay Paxton who retired as the vice commandant. And the J2 was uh, Mike Rogers who just retired as um, uh, NSA cyber cop. You know, so, um, you know, you're working with just incredible talent as well as um, from 04 to the one and two stars uh, that are on the staff or just from all the services are just unbelievable. It's the best staff. I tell people it's the best staff um, and quality of uh, the caliber of people that, uh, that you'll ever work with. So it's a, it's a fascinating job. Uh, and yes, uh, when, the, when the Joint Chiefs meet, the only non-member of the Joint Chiefs that's in the tank um, is the director, unless the chairman asks the director to leave. And the two chairmen, I was never asked to leave. Um, so, so that you could be the, the directors described for the discussions that go out there that they want to make sure are part of uh, the public forum, which is just about all, everything they discuss there. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. It's pretty eye-opening. And uh, being on the joint staff at that level, you know, the joint staff is what I call uh, the peacekeepers. I told uh, General Dempsey when he was taken over that we joint staff really ought to wear blue helmets. We're a lot like the UN. You know, we keep peace among the services, among the services and OSD, among the combatant commands, all of the combatant commands themselves and the combatant commands and the, and the, uh, and the services, um, it's, uh, uh, every, it's, it, you know, it's what makes a good marriage. A good marriage is compromise and, uh, finding a compromise position to do the best things that we can, uh, to, to defend this great nation of ours. Sure. Now, are there ever any periods of time where there's really that much friction between the branches? You know, like I know in the Pacific and world war II, the army and the Marines, there was a lot of kind of, I guess, bad blood there. Is that, the case nowadays at any point or, or not, not so much? 
No. Um, well, first off, uh, you know, you got to, you got to keep parts of friction. Um, uh, name, name anywhere, any organization that there's not going to be friction. You know, friction can be, um, you know, it's, it's a lot like sandpaper. There's 500 grit, which is really smooth. And then there's, you know, uh, 50 grit, which is pretty rough. And it all provides friction uh, if you want to sand down wood. Um, so there's friction in anything you do because uh, there's different priorities and different ways of looking at things, uh, looking at a particular issue. Um, uh, so you're, that's, just, that's just the way things are. It's just life. There's always friction. Um, sure. And uh, I would be concerned if, um, you know, if I go into an organization and I see everybody nod their head up and down and agree with uh, wherever the leader's taking us, um, that causes me some concern because, um, uh, you know, I don't care how great a leader is, um, uh, if everybody agrees with the leader, it could be because the leader is always right or they're afraid to speak at an alternative point of view. So quite frankly, all of us and everybody I've worked for uh, likes that alternative point of view to make sure that we look at all sides of an issue um, to get to the right answer, the best answer given the information that everybody has at the time. So do I see the friction? Um, did I see the friction then or do I see the friction now outside that we had in the past and I'd say, no way, I don't. You know, one of the best things this nation ever did was pass Goldwater Nichols to force jointness onto services that the services did not want uh, back mm -hmm. then. Um, but today, I don't think you'll talk to a single service chief or anybody that doesn't think it's one of the best things. It didn't get everything right, but it sure got a lot right. And um, uh, uh, let's go, let's take another stab at it and fix those things that uh, need to be fixed but not lose sight of uh, how great, you know, 18 years of war, um, we wouldn't have been successful without two things. One is the, is the, is a joint fight, a joint perspective. And the second is the all volunteer force and the most resilient force we've ever had. And um, no one wants to go back, nor can we afford, um, you know, uh, individual service parochial stovepipes. That doesn't mean that there isn't tension. There isn't friction on different points of view. Um, but it uh, it is not anything like it was in the past. No. Hmm. I see. When you reached the upper levels of the naval ranks, three and four stars, was there anything that most surprised you about the importance of your position and all that it entailed? Mm. No, not really. I mean, uh, we're we're pretty much an experience based force, and. Um, you know, your previous uh, jobs and experiences prepare you for your next job. Um, and, uh, and with each new job uh, comes differences, comes, uh, you know, maybe different priorities. But how you handle the day-to-day -day challenges and define a strategic plan for the uh, organization that you're leading, um, uh, it's, it's, just a, it's just a new plan. So there was nothing that really caught me by surprise. Um, uh, they're all different. Uh, every every tour is different, but uh, this this you know we're a meritocracy in the military, last meritocracy in America, and um, uh, you know you are selected um, for your uh, achievements, um, your experiences, and then what leadership thinks that uh, your potential for uh, uh, executing the mission in the future. 
um, they, they roll that all up. And the most important thing is, do they think you can handle the challenges for the jobs that they select you in the future? Um, so uh, in, in a nutshell, no, I, I felt pretty well prepared to do all the things, all the jobs that I held. No. Well, I think a meritocracy is probably the best way to run any organization. And, and nowadays, outside the military, you probably don't see that so much. And to me, someone's ability and their achievements should be the most important factor in anything like that. Yeah, well, you know, we have uh, two types of boards in the military, um, statutory and administrative. And the statutory boards are the ones that um, uh, you are selected among your peers um, uh, for promotion by rank. Uh, and then the administrative boards are the ones that we in the Navy that, uh, that select you for command positions. Um, so you have to pass through both boards, both wickets, just because you're promoted doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be promoted and placed in a position of command because there's another board that you, you go to uh, um, for that uh, for that next job. And that, that holds true all the way up through um, the third star. Just third star is a, is not a board, but everything else is statutory or administrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we haven't had five stars in the military in a long time. Do you think there's going to be a need for that at any point, or what are your thoughts about that? No, I don't think you need one. I mean, no. you know, it 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 um, the 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 people that I think are are really successful when they are working with um, individuals of the same rank are people that are good at peer leadership. Um, and uh, uh, peer leadership is if there's no defined um, by, uh, by law or policy that someone has, you know, say a positional uh, advantage over another peer. Um, uh, the, the other one is, is if it's defined. So, like, uh, right now, out of the last um, NDAA, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs has been assigned uh, uh, the uh, global integrator. Um, uh, he is, he's not in the chain of command. The chain of command goes from the president to the secretary of defense to the combatant commanders. The chairman is not in that chain of command. However, he has been assigned to, you know, to be that fair leader to integrate all of the campaign plans um, uh, that the nation may be tasked uh, to execute, to synchronize and integrate across the different combatant commands, both geographically and, uh, and transcom and stratcom and cybercom uh, and special ops command, uh, all of the combatant commands in order to, to, to make sure that we apportion the, for, the resources correctly to the need and we understand the risk um, when we don't apportion all that we need to a particular area. So uh, I, I think that works just fine, um, and I just don't think a you know, fifth star would, would solve the problem. Mm-hmm. So your career was capped off by leading U.S. Northern Command and NORAD. Uh, for those who may not know much beyond that, um, except for the fact that you track Santa and you might have the Stargate in the alternate command center, uh, what were the specifics of that? role that you did there and what were some of the challenges you faced? Well, first off, you know, track and Santo is a no fail mission. Um, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely critically no fail mission and having three grandkids, I'm here to tell you it's a no fail mission. It's a fun mission and it's pretty interesting. It's, it's probably the best branding 
PR branding um, that anybody's ever come up with in the Department of Defense. Uh, or since it's NORAD, it's a binational command, both Canadian and U.S., um, and it was done just by the state, if you're familiar with the history. Um, the, uh, it's, it's a, you know, it, it, so there are two separate commands. It's a single command, but there's, um, but the, the two commands are fully integrated. And, um, and actually, if you really want to understand it, Northern Command is, uh, is assigned to defend the nation against the traditional military threats. And it actually does that in the air domain through NORAD. Um, because uh, NORAD does can does North America, Canada, and the United States, and um, in the air domain, and defend the U.S. That part of that in the U.S. is done through the through the NORAD command structure. Um, the other domains are all done through Northern Command. Uh, so, uh, who wouldn't want to be charged with defending the United States? I mean, that's why we all raised our right hand to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies of foreign and domestic and and that's the job of, of Northern Command. Um, so it's uh, it's a fun job. Now there are challenges. There's some other tasks that Northcom is assigned, and that is the defense support for civil authorities. DISA is what we call it. And most people think of that of a, of a Katrina or Super Storm Sandy um, or Harvey response effort, uh, but it's any time that um, another uh, lead federal agency needs support from the Department of Defense. North Carolina is usually tasked to provide that capability or uh, see to or organize that capability. Um, uh, the request goes to the Secretary of Defense, and if it's appropriate, the Secretary of Defense then assigns NORTHCOM to head up that particular effort to, to organize it and, and, and execute the, DO, the Title 10 portion of that, the DOD portion of that. Um, so uh, pretty cool job. It's a lot of fun. And then the NORAD, it's a little different uh, because it's a binational command. You know, before the NORAD NORCOM commander is announced, um, uh, uh, not, is nominated, both uh, the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of Canada has to approve that name, and then it is announced. So it's um, – and the chain of command for NORAD is a little different than the NORCOM. NORCOM, of course, it goes from the President of the United States to the Secretary of Defense to the NORCOM commander. And in, uh, the NORAD chain of command in Canada goes from the prime minister to their minister of defense and then to their, to their chairman equivalent, chief of defense staff, their chairman is in that chain of command. That's about, and it's, it's neat working with our Canadian, uh, Canadian partners. Well, interesting. It sounds like it. So I want to get to a few uh, other miscellaneous issues, but um, in your career, is there one assignment in particular that you remember most fondly? Well, you know, I, I commanded at every level um, in the Navy, uh, and every command's different. Every command is um, is great. I mean, that's when I decided to stay in the Navy. I wanted command, O5 command, and then I wanted um, captain command, and then I wanted strike troop admiral command, and then I wanted fleet command, and then I wanted one of the big four-star Navy commands. And then they also threw a combatant command on top of that. So I was, they're all, I mean, I, I just had a great run, um, really, uh, and had fun in every single one of them. And each single one uh, um, was an absolute joy 
given the responsibilities and the tasks that that individual command had, and then when the next command there came greater responsibility and a, a different set of tasks and different set of focus that you then had to, uh, to execute. So they were all terrific. Um, your first command is always very, very special. Um, uh, there's, there's no question about it. That's why you stayed in. And then after that, I was lucky enough to command the Navy and Marine squadron that was responsible on the East Coast to train Navy and Marine F-18 pilots. And there was a whole new set of learning experiences, um, you know, stretching leadership challenges because it's such a large command. And then, hey, we all want lead, uh, leading combat, and I was able to do that, supporting combat operations as an airline commander. And, and um, putting the band together as a striker commander uh, was really neat. And then Fleet in Bahrain, oh gosh, it was just phenomenal to be able to, to do that, um, supporting the fight um, both in Iraq and Afghanistan and and uh, hoping to uh, figure out how to how to deal with Iran and and build stability and security in in the maritime uh, in that rough part of the world. And then uh, you know, Fleet Forces Command, which is tasked to you know Batista the Mississippi and has Navy Navy written on it. Um, I was accountable for it. How cool was that? And then of course being a combatant commander that we talked about. So again. Um, uh, they were they were all special, um, and uh, they were all fun, uh, given the nature of what they were doing. There's not one that stands out uh, over any of them. They were just all great. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So you mentioned Iran. Um, with them in particular, I thought uh, we should have done more to support some of the protests and potential uprisings against the government. Uh, Mayor, what are your thoughts on how to handle them and uh, some of the other challenges around them? Well, well, I missed the first part of your question. We were breaking up a little bit. Mass protests by people in Iran. I felt like the government did not really do enough here to, to support that and try to encourage change. Well, um, I, I think your question has to do with Iran and and um, uh, did the government do? I, I won't. I, one of the things I. I uh, I just won't uh, comment on is whether or not our political leadership has done the right thing or the wrong thing given the nature because mm-hmm. it puts our it uh, it puts those that are self-serving at the highest levels in a difficult uh, position. Um, Iran's a tough challenge, you know. Um, uh, it's a uh, first off, the Iranian people are wonderful people. Um, they really are, and they have a strong sense of history. Um, uh, I just don't think they're being very well served by the government. Um, and uh, we've been, you know, we've been um, having trouble with Iran since uh, since the revolution when they invaded our embassy. Um, uh, and we have been in diplomatic, economic, and we've actually swapped uh, warheads uh, over a period of time since then. So... Um, uh, we sank their navy a few years back, a regular navy a few years back, um, and they were uh, actively involved in the hard days in Iraq and eastern side of Iraq, and um, we lost a lot of soldiers and uh, Marines and a few sailors due to their um, due to their efforts, direct efforts in eastern Iraq. So we, our nations, have a disagreement, um, and uh, I, it'll be interesting to see what that what that regime does 
but I'll tell you, if you look at uh, all all things bad in the Middle East, and it's like a sweater and with a loose thread, and you pull that loose thread, you're going to find that most of it goes back to um, the nefarious activity that, uh, that the Iran government is choosing to, to do to spread discontent um, around the Middle East. Um, they're not alone with that. I mean, um, you know, just the way the Middle East the boundaries were created after World War One is a large problem. Um, but if you look at uh, the instability, uh, Iran's a, a key, a key, the government of Iran is a key enabler of that. No, I definitely think that's true. So as someone who is an expert in strategic studies, from a more historical perspective, who are some of the figures and wars that you look for look to in terms of admiring the expert planning and are there any in which you see some of the biggest disasters? Well, first off, um, I don't call myself an expert. I, 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 uh, um, I, I don't like it when people call themselves expert and I'm not an expert. I just have some experiences um, and I read a little bit. So uh, mm-hmm. do not think that I'm an expert by a long shot. Um, sure. Uh, but I think uh, in the maritime, probably the, uh, one of the best leaders uh, we've ever had um, was Chester Nimitz. And, uh, you know, he, uh, he took an incredible challenge um, and uh, had some, a rough challenge when he took over uh, the fight, the Pacific fleet uh, after Pearl Harbor. And, um, and then the challenges of an ill-defined chain of command uh, between him and MacArthur um, and a Europe first uh, strategy um, and still uh, was able to prevail. Uh, and you look at, uh, you look at what um, he had to do what the whole Navy had to do in order to fight their way through the uh, third, second and first Island chain to get to, to Japan to be successful. Yeah. You know, just phenomenal. And uh, mm-hmm. just a phenomenal leader. And uh, uh, his, his, his teachings are, we still use to this day um, at the Navy War College training our operational level of war fighters. Now, Nimitz's name tends to come up a lot. Uh, with MacArthur, I've always admired him, uh, but I think there's some sort of a polarized view. People either love him or they criticize him. What do you think about that? Well, um, yeah, and, and I think that's a good way to describe him. Um, he, he, he was a significant, you know, just an incredible force and incredible strategic thinker. Um, but he wasn't a very good teammate, uh, if my readings are correct. And, um, uh, you know, and that to be, you know, I think that's important not only to be a good strategic thinker and a good leader, you have to be a, you have to be a good uh, teammate as well. And MacArthur just, I just don't think he was that good a teammate, especially considering how he was relieved in Korea is, uh, exhibit A. Sure. Well, he wanted to go after the Chinese, so if he didn't support that, then... Yeah, well, you've well, got to understand your yeah. chain of command. He is also, if, you're, if, you, if you study him, he, he wasn't uh, real fond of the president. And, and uh, um, uh, well, just in a nutshell, he, just, he was, wasn't fond of Truman and, quite frankly, was disrespectful to the man. He is the commander-in-chief, and uh, we, work for the com- we work for the commander-in-chief. That's a good point. So I saw you said in an interview that you thought our Navy was about the right size. Um, so what are your overall thoughts on the current status of the Navy and armed forces in general, and what would you like to see done in the future? 
Um, I think we're bringing up a little bit here. Regardless of the size of the Navy, the, the Navy um, needs to be balanced. The Navy, United States Navy, is a system of systems. And um, it doesn't um, fight with uh, aircraft carriers alone. It doesn't fight with submarines alone. It doesn't fight with Arleigh Burke destroyers alone. It is the integration of all of the, the, the submarines, the ships, the aircraft carriers, the air wing that goes on it, the naval aviation that is land-based, our maritime patrol, our, our expeditionary forces, um, and the operational uh, and tactical warfighting staffs headquarters that uh, uh, put that system of system together and fight. And and so to be uh, what I think right now is we're a little out of balance, to tell you the truth. Um, you know, uh, in, over the last eight years, naval aviation was the bill payer to grow a larger surface Navy. Um, and as a result, uh, naval aviation is out of balance. Uh, both in readiness, uh, not to mention the readiness accounts for our surface ships, but uh, a little bit out of balance. Um, that needs to we need to get some more capability, more capacity, in order to put that uh, put that system of systems more in balance. And there's other examples for for surface ships as well that we have the right electronic suites, we have the right number of warheads, uh, the right sensors that can um, deal with today's threats and outpace tomorrow's threats. You know, those are investments that we put on our what we might call our legacy or the platforms we already own that we need to continue to modernize the systems to make sure that there isn't a weak link um, in that system of systems. So right now, I think, uh, you know, the investments that the Secretary of Defense has put in place, uh, the guidance, um, you know, to get the readiness accounts back to where they need to be uh, is absolutely the right right course of action. Sure. Sounds sensible. So finally, uh, could you tell us about what you've been doing and primarily focused on since uh, retiring from the Navy? Well, um, boy, that's a great question. I wasn't looking for that one, AJ. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, so I'm continuing to serve in both uh, private and public uh, capacities. Uh, in the public capacity, I helped the National Defense University and the Navy War, War College uh, in the senior mentoring of, um, of the new flags and general officers and at the, uh, and the, and at the three-star, and in some cases, the four-star level for the Navy. I also help uh, with exercise support and the, and the uh, training and assessment of the operational headquarters at the four- and three-star level for the, for the Navy. And um, so that's the stuff I really enjoy doing. It doesn't take much time, um, uh, but the time I do give it is it's a it's a lot of fun to be able to stay connected and and give back to the give back to the institution that took such good care of me and my sailors and Marines over 39 years. Uh, and then in a, in a private capacity, um, I'm an independent consultant for some defense contractors, and I sit a couple boards. Um, uh, and it's that's fun, uh, but it's not as fun as giving back to the institutions. And as well, I'm on the President's Advisory Council for now Elon University, um, which is fun to go back to Elon and see how well it's done. And we'll be heading there on Friday for homecoming this week. 
Well, it was enjoyable talking to you and hearing everything you had to say. And uh, thanks again for, for coming on. Okay. Well, thanks for reaching out to me and uh, good luck to you and to your audience. Appreciate it. Thanks. Out here. Bye. That was Admiral Bill Courtney. Great discussion with him and um, another fantastic military episode. So we'll be back soon with a different topic. And until then, this has been AJ Bruno for the AJ Bruno show. I'm signing off. So long. Thanks.